If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Friday. Separate participating McDonald's through 1231 Excludes tax. Must update to rewards. Order a sheep's head already divided by the butcher. Remove the brain and soak it in cold water and vinegar to whiten it. Soak the head in tepid water and salt for half an hour. Scrape the small bones from the nostrils. Cleanse the head thoroughly, then blanch and rinse. That was Mary Gwynne describing a delicious recipe from many decades ago. Illegitimacy has been airbrushed out of social history. And that does a disservice not only to to the veracity of history, but also to the people who were involved. And that was Jane Robinson talking about the importance of studying the history of illegitimacy. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of March 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Next Tuesday on BBC Two, a new series begins called Back in Time for Dinner, in which a modern family sample British food from several different decades in the post-war era. The series is accompanied by a book of the same title, written by the food writer Mary Gwynne. And I caught up with Mary at the offices of her publisher in London, to find out more. 
What would you see as the biggest changes in the way we've eat, we eat in the past 50, 60 years? Funnily, in some ways, some things haven't changed at all. We still eat Sunday lunch as a family. You know, there, there are one very reassuring things. The biggest thing is how we shop, how we prepare our food, and how we eat it. <laughs> it's everything. It, where we eat it, how we eat it, how we cook it, the lot. It has completely changed. And do you feel that it's been mainly technological changes that's fueled that, or has it been more to do with society It's changing? been a combination. I, it's, it's, they've all worked together. One of the biggest causes of changes is the change in women working. So, but interestingly, where the series starts in 1950, you've got a fact, because during the war, most women worked. They were conscripted, called up to work. Mid-1943, almost 90% of single women and 80% of married women had been employed in essential work for the war effort. So that's a huge number of women working then. But obviously you had rationing, you had canteens, you had lots of places for people to eat. Children ate food at school, working people ate in canteens, and those were all closed mainly after the war. So what happened is in 1950, you got women back in the home and they were cooking again. So that's been, to take the... the, the spread of this book it's been changes in how much women work alongside the technological development and that's from a point of point of view of food science and equipment and kitchens i guess one of the biggest equipment changes must have been the fridge and the freezer because that just transformed how often you have to go shopping it really did so the fridge and we all the fridge was actually invented uh in the 20s but it didn't come in really by the end of the 60s 50% 50% of houses had fridges. So the 60s is the era of the fridge being seen as an essential piece of equipment. But still, it's still only you know, half the population. So yes, the fridge transformed the way we shop. And then again, the freezer coming along in the 70s. And then at the end of the 70s, the ready meal. So you've got the microwave, the ready meal, and the freezer coming into the 80s, which completely changed the way we eat. And though I guess we have stereotypes now of how people used to eat in the past, that food was very drab, say, just after the war, and, and but also that people kind of all ate together very communally. Is, was that all true, or are these stereotypes need a bit of unpicking? I think they do need unpicking. I mean, it was true to a certain extent that... But again, if we're saying during the war, families didn't eat together. The men were mainly away, the women were out working. That's when the, the latchkey child came into being in the war because children came home from school and the houses were empty because their mothers were out at work. So... I think the changes through the 50s, this vision of the family sitting down to eat together, one of the big things is the main meal of the day was lunch. And most men came home for lunch. So something like seven in 10 men came home for lunch. They worked locally enough to be able to walk or bike back. um, And their wife would have cooked them and it would have been the main meal of the day. So the change, the introduction of school dinners which happened um, through the 40s and into the 50s. And that really changed because it meant that children were not eating with their family for the main meal of the day. So that was a big change. And there's, I guess, another stereotype people seem to think nowadays is that food was much healthier in those days. It was more simple. People didn't eat so much processed food. But, but look at some of the recipes in your book. Although there maybe wasn't as processed, some of the food didn't look that healthy. What it would say is when I think there was the lack of vegetables that were eaten is a real shock. So the National Food Survey, which was this this huge food study, I think it's the biggest food study in the world, started in 1940 
by the government to check what working class families were eating. And then in the 50s, it was expanded to cover the whole population. And it ran till 2000. And it's a, fac- I mean, a, a huge source of knowledge. And it does show that people didn't eat very many vegetables. They certainly weren't doing the five a day. They ate a lot of fat, um, but they didn't eat a lot of sugar. So, and you're right, no, very little processed foods. So, but they were eating a huge amount of calories. The average calorie intake at the end of the war, when rationing continued for five years after the war, I think in 1947, the average calorie intake was 2,750 calories a day. We're now recommended to eat 2,000 calories a day. By the time rationing finished and the years of plenty came in, that went up to 3,000 calories a day. So we were eating more fat, we were eating more calories, but we were healthier. So maybe do you think it might have been actually that the reason why you've got this obesity crisis now is more to do with lack of exercise rather than eating more calories in that case? It's very complex. It's not that straightforward. We don't move as much. We don't do as much. We use our cars. We don't use our legs. Um, We've got central heating um, in the 50s. Just keeping warm used Mm. a lot of energy and it meant you moved around a lot more. But um, also what we ate, I think sugar, the hidden things that we eat now, we we eat so much more processed food that we don't really recognise what we're eating. And I think that's the challenge that the amount of, something like fruit juice or sugared cereal with sugar in. Now, when that was introduced in the 60s, that was an occasional treat. Now people eat it every day. Or, so I think it's the change in, in what we're aware that, of what we're eating that is one of the, the biggest impacts on, on the obesity and the, the snacking, the convenience, food on the go. One thing I thought was also really interesting is how certain ingredients that you certainly imagine people have always eaten actually aren't quite recent. Like chicken, I thought, was the most interesting one. The, nowadays, it's such a staple food. But in going back 30, 40 years, it was, seems a real treat and a really yeah. unusual how did, how did that come to change? Well, so that's, that's the, um, the, the, the uh, development of technology. Um, so the big push after the war, one of the reasons for rationing was we weren't producing enough food for ourselves. And because of the depression between the wars, our farming industry actually went into decline. So this is why a huge problem. We were importing so much of our food. So once the war was over, the government was so concerned about us not being able to feed ourselves that they put a huge number of incentives out for farmers and looked at new technology and chicken was one of the big things that happened because up until uh, the introduction of uh, new farming techniques for chickens to have a chicken at the table was very expensive you had to feed it expensive grain so you kept chickens for eggs but you didn't eat them very often and if you did it was because they were tired and old and not that tasty so chicken was a luxury which is why chicken coronation chicken was served at the coronation because chicken was a special treat um, and that was served to the you know the guests rather than you wouldn't have been eating coronation chicken out in out in the you know, the general public they'd have been eating spam and um, bloater paste sandwiches for coronation celebrations so but so what happened with chicken was the introduction of new technology basically battery farming high intensive farming and we you know now we eat as much chicken as we do pork beef and lamb put together so that's changed completely. It used to be completely the other way around. Another massive change must be in the supermarket revolution. Certainly in the way people shop, but probably also in the way people eat as well. Oh, uh, yes. I mean, they. I think we all spend our time bashing the supermarkets a bit, but they have given us so much. I mean, without them, 
If you think of the 50s housewife, she probably wouldn't have driven. She didn't have a fridge. She kept food cold on a cold slab in her larder. Um, and she would have had to shop every day with her basket, go to a lot of different shops, time-consuming, boring from queuing. She got to meet people and talk to people and she knew what she was buying. But it was a, you know, it was a, a full-time job. Actually, before the supermarkets, it was an introduction of self-service that was interesting. So there were a lot of grocers changed to self-service so that people didn't have to queue and they could look around the shops and off the shelves and pick all these new ingredients that were coming in. They could actually look at them, you know, decide whether they wanted them. That was a big change. And then into the 60s, more foods, more advertising. What advertising did is it made people want things that were there for a treat, for luxuries, which before it had always been about what you needed. So that was a big change. I guess another major change was the way that foreign food styles come in. I mean, you have Italian food, Spanish food, Greek food. Is that, is that mainly to do with the fact that people were able to go on holidays to these countries more and bring back those tastes, or were there other factors at play? There are really two big factors. One was that was the opportunity to travel. Up until the end of the 50s, foreign travel was seen as, 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 a, as a luxury for the very well-off. But what happened is through the 50s, as, as the, we came out of the, the impact of the war years and the country started to get richer and people, more people were in work, and they got holiday for the first time. So instead of going down to Margate or Brighton or one of the you know, Victorian seaside towns for the day, or Butlins, they started to want to go abroad. And so the um, package holiday changed it, but also the impact of immigration into the country in the 50s and the 60s. So the arrival of Chinese, Indian, bringing their cooking with them. And also the Italians who had been, there'd actually been a big Italian population in London from the previous century but they started to be seen it was very cool Italy that you had lots of Italian films in the 60s we had the coffee bar culture so people wanted to have a bit of they'd had these grey dreary years and they wanted to have a bit of fun and excitement and and luxury and sophistication so yeah so a lot of different influences on the way we eat and that connects I suppose also to the restaurant and the fact that people started eating out because certainly in the the 50s, people would, would virtually never have eaten out, and now it's so commonplace. Yeah, it, 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 we really, really didn't eat out in the 50s. It was, I think, something like only 2% of people ate out with any kind of regularity at all. It was, But the Wimpy arriving, the Wimpy Hamburger was launched at the Ideal Home Exhibition, I think, in 1953. And the impact of that, where for young people with money, so the new teenagers who, unlike their parents, actually... They had time, they had money, they were working. They weren't going to rush off and get married so quickly. And they were out spending and they wanted, they, they were this new, this new customer who wanted to spend money out and eat. And they went to the Wimpy, they went to the coffee bar. And then that expanded so that you know, we eat as many meals out as we do at home. And were these trends generally taking place nationally or would a lot of them start in the big cities, say London, and then travel outwards? Yes, definitely. From what I've I found, it seems to take about 10 years for things first being written about to actually to filter out into the, to the wider population. And I mean, I feel it as, you know, I started as a, a cookery writer on Good Housekeeping in 1957. No, I was born in 1957, <laughs> 1977. And, um, you know, I realise now that a lot of the things we were doing 
you know, we thought that everyone was doing them, but we were we were giving ideas, and people might have cooked one or two of the things, but they wouldn't have been doing these sort of exotic things all the time. So something like a wok. Habitat was selling woks from 1967, but we really didn't start cooking with them properly until Ken Hom came on the television in the 80s and actually showed us how to use them. So it's a slow drip. The British public, I think, in some ways, are incredibly conservative, but also we're very adventurous as well. So there is a, a bit of a contrast between what's going on. It's interesting how the different generations adapted to food, because this is one thing where people didn't generally just follow their parents. They didn't just cook what their parents cooked. They had almost rebel against that in some ways. No, I, th- I think one of the things is that advertising and marketing has made food something that we aspire to. So what happened in the 60s is what you bought and what you served when you entertained said everything about you. So slowly your kitchen, what you put on the table, how you served it, said everything about who you were. So think of Abigail's party in the 70s, the old apple with the cucumber and the cheese hedgehog. And, you know, this was all... Food has been about show, really, from the 60s, about showing off how much you know and how sophisticated you are. You know, in the 60s, it was um, probably uh, a Vesta curry. That was, you know, that was seen as sophisticated. You opened a few packets, poured boiling water over it, and it was, it was a magic, a real treat. And then Angel Delight in the, in the 70s. And then we've moved all the way through Nouvelle Cuisine. And now it's all about, you know, what, what can you do with every bit of a pig mm. and cook it for four hours? And, you know, I think 24-hour cooked roast pork now is a la Jamie or whoever. That's, it's all about show. And you, you mentioned Ken Holm earlier and Jamie just then. When did the kind of celebrity chef boom first begin? How much impact has that really had on our way we cook and eat? It's interesting, isn't it? I think that, that you've got a, a couple of questions coming through there because back in the 50s, you had really down-to-earth, sensible cooks. Marguerite mm. Patton, who'd been showing us during the war how to make the most out of rationing. She was one of the first cooks to appear on television. And she was showing people, women who through the war had been out working They hadn't been able to learn from their mothers how to cook. They needed to be shown how to cook again. So she was busy doing that. You then had a couple of men, so the galloping gourmet Graham Kerr, who started to show he drank wine while he cooked, which was rather exciting because we hadn't really thought about uh, drinking wine at home with our food. Maybe once we started to travel abroad, people would have a bit of wine and then they came back and they had it when they were out. But he actually was shown drinking with what you cooked at home. So, and then you go into the 60s, and we've got, I think it's Marguerite Patton, um, who was Fanny Craddock Craddock was the end of the 50s again, Mm. and she was very important, because she was the first person, it was about show, you know, it was all little carved, you know, tomato roses, and um, so she was very much about dining to impress, cooking to impress, and then you get Delia, who's so sensible and so important, um, And really, once you get to the 80s, it starts to be about less about being sensible and knowing all the skills and more about travel and entertainment and escapism, really. So we have Marda Jaffrey, Ken Hom, and it finally completely explodes into the 90s, where food on television seems to take up a huge part of the schedules and we the sales of cookery books just show chefs at the top of the best sellers you've got everyone from rick stein jamie and nigella at the end of the 90s so very very important but how much we actually cook from them now i think we probably did with delia and marguerite so yes another fairly major change is the fact that men start cooking more 
when does that first come in? Is that the 50s, 60s? It's really the 60s. I think you've got, um, again, this whole thing about a bit more time, a bit more money, um, people starting going to the cinema. So Len Dayton, who who wrote the script for The Ipcress File, which is one of the defining films of the 60s, with Michael Caine as Harry Palmer. Mm. Um, and he, he is shown cooking a meal for his girlfriend and saying, this is the best meal you're ever going to have. I can't do a Michael Caine accent. But... Um, so that was really interesting because it showed men cooking as sexy and cool and efficient. And that whole thing of kit, you know, the boys have always loved really good equipment. So I think that where cooking started to be seen as scientific, the right kit, and you could impress with it. So that happened, uh, that was important in the 60s. And then again, as we carried on through, one of the impacts of the miners' strike was that for the first time happening in the um, the 70s. Sorry, there were minor strikes in the 70s and the 80s. But in the 70s, where the, a lot more women were going out, might have been the only um, person working in the household. So men did actually have to think about cooking themselves, whether they wanted to or not. So social change, putting them into the kitchen. But having said that, even though men were cooking their cookery books for them, in the end, most of the cooking, until very recently and still to the main was done by the woman. And has education changed as well in terms of how people are educated about what they eat and like how to cook and who does the cooking? That's an interesting one because if you go back to the 50s where the government took such responsibility for teaching us how to cook and they produced pamphlets and leaflets and so much advice how to get the best out of your ration, how to make sure you're healthy, they... They ensured that, you know, pregnant women got extra food and uh, they really, really controlled what we eat. Also by the fact that children had school dinners, which had very strict guidelines. They had to provide a thousand calories a day. They were seen as the main meal of the day so that if a child didn't have um, a good meal at home, they they would be fine because they'd had a good school lunch. So... The fact that uh, then, really now, we're left, we get given lots of advice. There are always reports, we we all know, in the media, you're bombarded with different, you know, this one says you should eat, drink a glass Mm. of wine a day, this one says don't drink a glass of wine a day. But there's not that same, I suppose, the nanny state, as it was called, you know, looking after us, telling us, actually controlling what we eat, which is what rationing did. So I think that that is uh, the change in where we get our information from. And the amount of information we're given in in quite confusing ways, I think, has changed the way we look at food. Is there any sense in which modern food trends are in some ways being to hark back to the 50s, the 60s, and almost stop going in a circle? Absolutely. That's what this book, that's why everyone's going to read this book, because we're all going to say, oh, you know, I think I remember how my grandmother cooked. And I wrote, you know, it was like this when I was young. I mean, one of the interesting things that I found out is that we actually deceive ourselves by what we remember. Mm -hmm. So we have this golden vision of the foods of our youth, or even the, the vision of how our grandmothers shopped, that we think that everything was healthy and simple and you you went and you chatted with the butcher and he called you by your name now was that actually the case for example i read on i think it was a bbc history um website actually uh, and it was a it was a thing about how people celebrated the coronation and what they remembered eating and a lady from wales has, has said i remember that we listened to it on the radio and we ate coronation chicken 
Now, she couldn't have eaten coronation chicken because the recipe didn't come out for another three years. So that was a, that's a really interesting thought, that how do we really remember things? We have this vision of what it was like in the 50s. It was very hard work. The food was dreary. Women were working in 1951. Women were working in the home a 75-hour week. That's not the weekends. That's 75 hours of domestic chores. So... In some ways, we, we see it with a golden view. But at the same time, we are going back to concerns about the environment. How much meat do we eat? Do we eat together? Is our food over-processed? The issues that our grandparents were, were concerned about, we are concerned about, but we're coming at it from the other end of the telescope, as it were. There's been a bit of a backlash against the over-technologicalising yes, of food. Yes. So like the microwaves had a bit of a bashing. Hasn't yeah. Some of the more extreme types of ready meals. That yeah. It was so popular in the 80s and 70s. I think the 70s and 80s, what happened is we, we stepped back from understanding how our food was produced and then all the food scares of the 90s, so BSE, salmonella, the, um, the recent horse meat scare, all of these things, we suddenly realised we really don't know where our food comes from and what goes into it. And I think, you know, we, so we've had the rise of farmers markets, the organic box scheme, all those sort of things where people actually, they want to go back, they want to meet the people who are cooking their food. At one end, you've got the supermarket with no one even at the till anymore. So you haven't even got someone to say, oh, you know, what is this? What's in this? Um, so I think that we're, we're trying to do both. But actually, we're very lucky because in the 50s, they didn't have any choice. We now have choice. So we're coming at, you know, we'd like to go back to basics in the same way. But we've got supermarkets open 24 hours a day. We've got online ordering. We've got so much information we can go out and eat. Whereas our grandmothers had very little choice and it was extremely hard work. So I think we should really, really be grateful for the fact that we have choice and we can find out information. Um, if we try hard. Most people are harking back to the, the better end of the traditional kind of food. They're not, not some of the more unpleasant recipes made of offal. <laughs> They're not as popular now as... Well, as we say, look at Fergus Henderson and nose to tail eating. You know, we're all eating pig's trotters. and I mean, I, I love offal. I don't... I have to, having said that, I like offal now. I mean, I remember as a, as a teenager in the 70s, or as a school girl in the 60s, liver for lunch at school. Oh, just disgusting. Liver and mashed potatoes served with, a, with an ice cream scoop onto your plate. Oh, so yeah, I think there were good things previously, but we do tend to have, um, you know, a rather rose-tinted view of, of the 50s. People were well-fed because they were given enough to eat and they were healthy, but the food was bland, boring, really hard work to prepare. So, you know, I, I don't think many of us would decide to go back there if we had the, a real look at what it was like. And the family in the television programme, mm. where you see Rochelle, the work that she has to do in the 50s, and to serve a meal. I think she says, I think one day she serves a meal, which is national loaf, which is the brown bread that everyone ate during the war, which we would actually probably quite like now. Pilchards, tinned pilchards, and, um, and tomatoes. And she said it was hard work and it was the the most boring meal she'd ever served her family. So it's a bit of a, uh, the vision of what was happening then. We see it through those tinted spectacles. So would you say that this is now the best time to be cooking and eating because of all the choice you have and all the options that you have? I, yeah, I have to say, I think having done the research for this book, I think, yes, we're so lucky. We, we take so much mm. for granted. I mean, we have choice. 
I think that the struggle is that it's so easy to eat badly now. We're tempted by so much. We are, we see ourselves, everyone says they've got no time. And that's the big thing, you know, we're, 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 what are we, cash rich, time poor, although not so much since the um, you know, credit crunch of the, of the last decade. But we still are, compared to in the 50s, people spent 30% of their income on their food. We now spend 11 or 12%. So you know, we, we expect food to be cheap, but we've got so much choice. We can eat our way around the world five people at a table can eat every part of the world with, with, with no trouble at all. So I think we're very, very lucky. We should be grateful, really. And I hope that this television series and this book, that's the point that it will make, how grateful we should be, that we're not all 50s um, housewives. I'm really glad I'm not a 50s housewife. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> You'd make a lovely one. A frilly apron, I think, would suit you. <laughs> Just like one last question, from all the research you've done from this book, what would you say was the most unusual dish you came across? There are some crackers. Actually, I have this little book I've got here. I, I will eat most things. I've cooked and eaten most things. Well, most things. I've eaten some unusual things in my life. Chicken's feet, not so keen on. But here we have, this is a little book. It's the, called Personal Recipes. I think it was printed in the mid-50s from the East Kent Federation of the Women's Institutes. And the opening dish, and this sums up, so this is a time when rationing is just about to stop. And the opening recipe is for sheep's head broth. And it gives you one sheep's head. To prepare the head, order a sheep's head already divided by the butcher. Remove the brain and soak it in cold water and vinegar to whiten it. Soak the head in tepid water and salt for half an hour. Scrape the small bones from the nostrils, cleanse the head thoroughly, then blanch and rinse. Now that is the first recipe in the book. So, and there's a little picture of a little boy, sort of, you know, a bit like Oliver Twist saying, please, sir, can I have some more? Doesn't look that happy. No, he doesn't, does it? But, you know, that's, that. yeah, so I don't think we're going to be, um, I'm not going to be rushing out to cook um, sheep's head soup. And I think... The family, Rochelle had to cook a cow heel pie for her family in the 50s. Cow heel is actually literally, it's like us using a marrow bone or something to make because it's rich and gelatinous and adds flavour. But I don't think it went down very well with the Robshaws. So uh, I think cow heel pie I'll, I'll avoid. That was Mary Gwynne. The first episode of Back in Time for Dinner will air next Tuesday at 8pm on BBC Two. And Mary's book, also entitled Back in Time for Dinner, has recently been published by Bantam Press. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian.
Now it's time for this week's history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. Women are more attracted to war heroes than regular soldiers or men who display heroic traits in other lines of work, a study of Second World War veterans has revealed. Examining US-American soldiers who fought in the conflict, experts from the University of Southampton and universities in Germany and Amsterdam discovered that Medal of Honor recipients fathered more offspring than the regular veterans. From a control sample of 449 regular veterans and 123 surviving Medal of Honor recipients, the team found that Medal of Honor recipients had an average of 3.18 children, while regular veterans averaged 2.72 children. Experts supplemented their Second World War analysis with an investigation of 92 women studying in the UK today, which revealed that women were more likely to find a soldier attractive and were more inclined to date him if he had been awarded a medal for bravery in combat. The researchers concluded, quote, War heroism likely benefits men because it increases their sexual attractiveness and, as a result, their reproductive success. To read more about this story, visit historyextra.com. In other news, two American tourists have reportedly been arrested for carving their initials into a wall inside Rome's Colosseum. Daily Italian newspaper La Stampa says the women, aged 21 and 25, whose names have not been released, were spotted carrying out the act using a coin by fellow tourists, who then informed security. The women reportedly carved a J and an N around 8 centimetres high before taking a selfie. Police are said to have reported the women for damaging the ancient site. The pair may now go in front of a judge and face a penalty. Last November, authorities in Rome imposed a €20,000 fine, the equivalent of around $22,000, on a Russian tourist caught carving his name into the Colosseum. Meanwhile, secret plans to give a copy of Magna Carta to the United States in return for its support in the Second World War are to go on display for the first time. Drawn up at the height of the Blitz, the documents reveal how politicians considered giving a copy of the 1215 Magna Carta to America to help persuade the public to support the war effort, the Telegraph reports. Annotated by Sir Winston Churchill, the proposals were released by the National Archives in 2007 and have never before been on display. They will go on show at the British Library this week as part of its major new exhibition into Magna Carta and democracy. Magna Carta, Law, Liberty, Legacy opens on Friday the 13th of March and will run until the 1st of September. Thanks for that, Emma. And before our next interview, here's a reminder that our March edition is currently on sale. In this month's magazine, we explore life in Romans Britain at the time of Hadrian. We discover how Henry VIII nearly had a seventh wife. And we chronicle Shakespeare's mysterious youth. You can get hold of our March issue now in all good news agents and digitally. Now, being the child of unmarried parents is commonplace in today's Britain. According to a 2012 report by the Office for National Statistics, the figure stands at 47.5%. But as Jane Robinson shows in her new book, In the Family Way, that represents a remarkable shift in a very short space of time. So what has caused this change in attitudes? And what legacies remain for those individuals who either had children or were born, as the phrase has it, out of wedlock? Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Jane earlier this week 
to get the lowdown on this fascinating topic. So what first inspired you to write this book? Two things, I think. Um, professionally, I'd just written a book about the history of the Women's Institute, um, and they're a body of women who have struggled to be taken seriously at any time in their history. But I learned that one of their first public campaigns was in support of what was called the Bastardy Bill in 1920. And bastardy or illegitimacy was not something you were even supposed to think about, let alone talk about, let alone actually do something about. And the fact that the WI was making a very public campaign in support of single mothers and illegitimate children made me think that it must have had a huge impact on society. So I wanted to explore it further from that point of view. But also personally, like most families, ours has its gaps in the family tree, its unexplained little sort of airbrushed bits. And um, we do have experience of illegitimacy in our own family. So I wanted to explore that. And, and the two came together in the book. I mean, this is a story with a long history, obviously. What do we know about the periods of change uh, before the 20th century that particularly had an impact? I think the first time that illegitimacy was articulated in law was in the 16th century when the first Poor Law Acts came out. And that's when illegitimacy started to have an economic effect on society because parishes were expected to pay for the upkeep, not just of um, single mothers while they were confined and after they'd had their babies, but of the babies themselves, of the bastards. Um, and so I think that's really when the stigma began because society started to resent paying the wages of sin themselves, I think. Before that, it really wasn't too unusual that um, women got pregnant before they were married. In fact, in many places in the country, you were encouraged to try before you buy if you were thinking of marrying a woman. So it wasn't unusual at all. Hmm. Uh, we should say at this point what we mean when we use the phrase illegitimacy, because there's various sorts, I suppose, isn't there? Is that true to say? Yes, there's a rather horrible taxonomy of, of illegitimacy, or there was, covering every possible sort from um, incestuous to um, illegitimate children that were born of priests or nuns. It's incredibly um, complex and precise, this taxonomy. But as time went on, as we moved further away from the um, 16th century, really the blanket term of bastard came to cover everybody who was born out of wedlock and everybody was marked with the same stigma of shame. And focusing on the 20th century, as you do in your book, to a large part, it surprises me how recently this shame was still existing in such a huge amount. Oh, very much so. That's one of the things that really surprised me about researching the book. Um, I go up to the swinging 60s when, when everything changed, and we can perhaps talk about why in a minute. But even though that is a half a century ago, more now, the sense of shame amongst people who were involved in illegitimacy then is still incredibly live. Um, and nobody turns a hair or few people turn a hair now because you're more likely to be born to unmarried parents than you are to married parents. But that shift just in a generation or two is complete in the public imagination. But for those who were actually involved in illegitimacy, that shift has not yet taken place in many cases. Hmm. I mean, how terrified were unmarried mothers about becoming pregnant? It was the worst thing that could happen to a respectable family. And, and when I say respectable family, I, I, I mean everybody, apart from the outer margins of um, society. So if, if you were aristocratic, 
aristocracy or royalty, then it didn't really matter if you added a lusty little offshoot to your family tree. Or if you were right at the bottom of the socio-economic scale, it didn't seem to matter then either because children were absorbed into the family and people didn't care quite so much what the neighbours thought. But for all the families in between, it was a badge of iniquity, a badge of shame. It meant that you hadn't brought your daughter up properly if she became pregnant. It meant because people thought that um, illegitimacy was um, heritable, it meant that there was some dark secret way back in the family that couldn't be expunged, you know, evil will out, bad blood and all the rest of it. it. It was it's difficult to imagine now how terrible it was if you became pregnant when you weren't married. And this is up to the 60s we're talking, even further than that, perhaps. Even even further than that. I mean, anybody who, who's seen the film Philomena will know about the Magdalene Asylums in Ireland, which is where unmarried mothers could be sent to have their children. Um, and if they didn't repent of their sin, uh, they were sent to work in industrial laundries. And the last one of those didn't close till the 1990s. Well, I mean, what social factors has contributed to this sense of shame that people felt? I think, especially after the Second World War, when everybody was trying to build a shiny new Britain and media was full of identikit families of, of mother at the oven in her pinny and, and father in his suit, having just come home from work, and a nice little boy in his knitted tank top and a little girl in her frilly dress. That was so much the ideal that any aberration from that was um, swept under the carpet. And the greatest aberration from that was illegitimacy. There's some amazing personal stories in your book of people's experiences. Do any particularly stand out? Um, as to kind of demonstrating this? It, it was a very intense book to research, as you can imagine. I mean, I asked for stories from as many different sources as I could, and I ended up with over 100 very personal histories, um, very secret histories. Some of the people who spoke to me hadn't told their secret, the secret of an illegitimate child or the secret that they were themselves illegitimate to anybody else, not to subsequent husbands, not to subsequent children. So you can imagine some of the stories I was hearing were incredibly affecting, um, very, very touching. I think perhaps just one image stands out from the whole of my research. And that's of a woman I spoke to who had to give up her illegitimate child over 50 years ago now. And Every time she goes to her airing cupboard now and takes out a bundle of soft, warm, heavy laundry from the airing cupboard and she holds it in her arms, it takes her straight back 50 years to the last time she held her baby son and she cries. She still cries now 50 years later. That's the thing. It had such a legacy for people who were caught up in this social story. I mean, what things were in place to help them with this social issue, if you like, in inverted commas? Well, immediately after the First World War, the first organisation was set up expressly to help single mothers and fathers and their illegitimate children. And that was the National Council for the Unmarried Mother and Her Child, which eventually became Gingerbread, which is still in, um, still in existence. That was run by a woman called Lettuce Fisher, who was non-judgmental. It was the first time anybody had been non-judgmental about bastards and recognised that the children were not to blame. In many cases, the mothers were not to blame and they needed all the help they could get. Other organisations were the Salvation Army, who ran mother and baby homes. And also, I think the popular 
perception is that the Salvation Army were rather prudish about it, but they were not. They were very open-minded and, again, tried very hard not to be judgmental. Dr. Bernardo's, of course, um, looked after a lot of the illegitimate children and other children's homes. Um, We've talked there about judgment. To what extent was the idea of a moral judgment uh, a factor in this story in a way that we can't really understand today, I guess, even though it's so soon afterwards? Yeah, it it was very, very much a factor. I mean, the moral landscape has completely changed now. There aren't so many privet hedges and neck curtains around now. I think there's there's less blame, there's more rationalisation, and there's there's more tolerance. And we do realise now that, um, as certain people realised back in the 1920s, that blame wasn't always something that could be attached either to the parents of illegitimate children or or to their children. And in fact, the very word illegitimate has been illegitimized now. Um, since the 1980s, it hasn't been used to refer to a child that is born out of marriage. So the whole landscape has changed. But even though it has, that doesn't make it any easier to appreciate how very dark a place um, the moral landscape could be back in the 50s, the 40s, the 30s and beyond there. Going back to this ideal picture of England, I think, um, it was the fact that producing a, a daughter who could have an illegitimate child, let alone the daughter producing the child, meant that you have bad blood in your family. And if you have bad blood in your family, there was no place for you in modern Britain. Were there any social institutions that you think particularly contributed to this moral sense of of shame or of kind of badness in some way? There were several institutions or movements that did um, tend to rub in the fact that illegitimacy was was a canker in society. A lot of them, rather shockingly, were were young people's organisations. Very influential group called the Girls' Friendly Society, which ran throughout most of the 20th century, would not admit girls who were illegitimate to its ranks. And, and it, you know, it wasn't a particularly religious organisation. It was just for, for young women to get to know each other. But they thought that if you were illegitimate, you would contaminate the rest. Um, also, certain branches of the church, some, some were very accepting, some were not. And I've got a passage in the book, which is a sort of battle of the bishops, some of them saying that um, we, we should be large-hearted, generous-spirited towards um, towards bastards, and others saying that, no, if we accept illegitimate children into society, we will be left with the morals of the farmyard, and what will happen to our society, it will sink into oblivion. We should talk about the role of fathers in this story as well. Um, did any of that surprise you? Were there any stories that particularly stood out in, in that context? Yeah, nobody's really written about the role of um, single fathers before. Um, they've been caricatured, I guess, in the history of illegitimacy as as the bad boys, as the one who got the ones who got the girls into trouble. But it it wasn't always the case. In fact, it was rarely the case. And and I interviewed several men, or came across the testimony of several men who were desperately sad that they had not been able to play a part in their illegitimate children's lives because it wasn't until 1959 that a natural father could have any say at all over his child. So if a mother, for example, was forced to get the child adopted or if if she wanted to get the child adopted indeed and the father didn't, it didn't matter. The father had absolutely no say. He was completely impotent in the future of his child. And this, as you can imagine, led to a lot of heartache amongst single fathers. 
Um, if you had to nominate one or maybe two factors that you think have most shaped this radical shift in the space of 50 years, what would you, what would you choose? It is a difficult one, and it's something that I've, I've thought about a lot. Obviously, the Abortion Act and the availability of the pill in the 1960s had a lot to do with the practical impact of illegitimacy. But I think ideologically it did as well, because gradually I think people realised that illegitimacy was something that could be accommodated, that could be managed um, and could be coped with. And I think this attitude spread to those who actually had the illegitimate children, as well as the ones who were trying to prevent the fact that they were doing so. So the permissive age had a lot to do with it. I think we have to remember that the permissive age was not just um, an age where we were permitted to do certain things. I think it was the age where we were able to speak about things that we hadn't been able to speak about before. And illegitimacy was one of the greatest taboos before the 1960s. And when that stopped, um, I think things became a lot easier for single parents and their children. How important was sex education? Hugely important. If you think about it, the stigma of illegitimacy meant that it mustn't be talked about. If you'd had a child out of wedlock, that must be denied, it must be forgotten about. And if things aren't talked about, then you're not educated about them. So time and time again, when I was interviewing people for this book, they said, well, we got no sex education. We were told to be careful of boys. We were told to not get ourselves in trouble. But this oblique sort of um, threat was absolutely useless. And before they knew what was happening often. A lot, a lot of them have become pregnant. So sex education was um, a great, I think sex education had a huge impact on, on the attitude, public attitudes to illegitimacy. Um, this idea of people um, giving voice to these issues, how important was it you as a historian to give voice to these people's stories? Well, I think it was very important because this whole issue offends me greatly as a historian illegitimacy has been airbrushed out of social history. And that does a disservice not only to, to the veracity of history, but also to the people who were involved. Um, it's, it's always dangerous, I think, when history is redacted in, in any way, when it's glossed over. And I think illegitimacy is the classic case of glossing over something or, or airbrushing it out. And it's important to note, I think, what we have considered to be taboo in the past. I think that's interesting um, for people these days of my children's generation in, in their early 20s who I, I, I told one of them what I was writing about and he just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, and I'm, why are you writing about that? It's important that we should know what society thought was worth keeping quiet in the past, if you see what I mean. Um, something that comes across in equal measure from the book uh, in terms of there being kind of sad stories is the idea that in some ways this could be a positive force in people's lives. In what ways could people use the kind of tag of being you know, in some way illegitimate as a positive thing? I met some very proud people while I was researching the book. One man said that um, it was a privilege to be at the root of his own family tree, which I thought was a lovely image to have. Others said that they felt um, unencumbered, they felt free of family history because the family history started with them, which is a very positive way to think of it. Others said that they felt they'd been given an independence of spirit and they felt that they had learned what the really important things in life were. And you're right, I would hate people to think that this was all 
a book of sadness and sorrow because what it's taught me, I think more than anything, is about the the everyday strength of the human spirit. Illegitimacy could occasion huge joy and courage and family solidarity as, as well as bigotry and sorrow. And I think that's what stays with me. Mm. Do you think there is any legacy left of the less accepting attitudes of the recent past? I tell you what there is, and, and that's... You hear about people who signed the Official Secrets Act during the war, maybe people who lived at Bletchley Park or something, and they still feel unable to talk about what they did. Well, that's the sense that I got when I was talking to a lot of the women, especially, who were involved in this story. I mentioned that some of them were telling me secrets that they haven't yet told anybody else. And that really surprised me that this sense of shame and stigma and denial was so drilled into people, so deep-seated, that they're still living in the shadows of it. And I think the one thing that has made me feel satisfied and gratified about writing this book is the fact that one person said, I'm going to give this book to my family. This will be the first they hear of what happened to me. And I think they'll understand. That's really powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And we have touched on this. Are there any other personal stories that particularly stood out for you in the course of writing this book? There's one, um, I mentioned Philomena before, there's the story of twin girls who were born in a Magdalene asylum because their mother had been put in there um, as um, what was called a, a moral imbecile. Until 1959, if you were pregnant under age, your family could commit you to an asylum, not because you were mentally imbecilic, as the terms were at the day, but because you were morally imbecilic. And that's why to this day, there are still elderly women in um, mental hospitals who were committed and then institutionalised merely because um, they'd had an illegitimate child. Anyway, these twins who got in touch with me, they were born in a Magdalene asylum when their mother was raped on a day outing from the asylum. And the, the mother looked after them for the first six weeks within the Magdalene home, but then they were taken away and they were adopted. And they were adopted by a wonderful couple, had a wonderful childhood, but very movingly, they traced their mother, who was who lived in the Magdalene Asylum all her life, and they built a very strong and loving relationship with her as well. Um, if you could somehow travel back in time and ask someone involved in this story a question, what question would you ask? It's a difficult one. I think I'd asked... I would ask the parents of some of the unmarried mothers that I met, I'd ask them, does it really matter so much what the neighbours think? Um, it's a difficult one because it did really matter so much what the neighbours thought. But but looking back, was it really worth ruining your daughter's life for some illusory sense of respectability? Because believe me, it did ruin many people's lives. Mothers who were young mothers, often in their teens, who were sent to the other end of the country to have their children. These children were then taken away at six weeks. The girls came back home, expected to completely forget what had happened, to deny what had happened. Some cover story would be would be dreamt up. And that did huge damage. Was it really worth it? That's That's what I'd like to ask. If uh, people who are reading this book could get a new impression of this issue, what kind of new impression would you hope they would leave with? I'd like people to understand what the emotional cost of illegitimacy was. Um, 
we talk about statistics and we talk about teenage mothers and, and we talk about um, illegitimate children being looked after by certain agencies and being paid for and, and sponges and sinners and all the rest of it. But I wanted to drill down to the emotional experience of having an illegitimate child or being an illegitimate child. And if people can begin to appreciate what that was and also begin to appreciate what I was talking about earlier on, this this strength of the human spirit and the strength of family support and love, which crosses the barriers of shame and stigma. That's what I'd like best of all. That was Jane Robinson. In the Family Way, Illegitimacy Between the Great War and the Swinging Sixties is out now, published by Viking. And that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time for more fascinating tales from the past. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.